0: We are told in the sources that in the centre of these monastic communities was an oratory church, often single-celled. The chancel of these churches came centuries later when there was a greater differentiation which was required between the laity in the nave and the clerics who were officiating. The earliest churches were constructed of wood, chiefly from oak as I mentioned earlier. In the seventh century we have a wonderful description of St. Bridget's church in Kildare which states that the church there was very high and divided by wooden partitions. One partition stretched across the church near the altar and we are told was covered by painted images. This would have created a designated holy space near the altar, otherwise the most holy place, the sanctissimus. Another partition divided the floor of the church into two areas. It appears that women and men entered this partition from different doors and were segregated within the church. The description also says that, at, that at on either side of the altar was interred the remains of St. Bridget, its renowned foundress, of course, and Conleth, her bishop. The description also mentions that such was the popularity of Kildare that it became a civitas, or a city, whereby many people flocked to live around the monastic site. In another detailed account, we can glimpse the inside of an early medieval oratory and its type of construction. According to a description that features in a rather enigmatic Latin work known as Hisperica Famina, which was written perhaps in the 660s, a wooden oratory church was, and I quote from the source, fashioned out of candle-shaped beams. It has sides joined by four-fold fastenings. The square foundations of the said temple gave it stability, from which sprung a solid beam work of massive enclosure. It has a vaulted roof above, square beams are placed, in the ornamental roof. It has a holy altar in the center on which the assembled priests celebrated the mass. It has a single entrance from the westerly boundary which is closed by a wooden door that seals the warmth. These descriptions of early churches begs the question as to how large were these early monastic communities and did they base themselves off a standard design, or standard model? Were the buildings derived from a standard model that had been adapted to Irish conditions or were they simply copied from elsewhere? An early poem suggests that a church community was often consisted of 12 clerics. This was probably idealized in that it mirrored, of course, the 12 apostles. The poem gives us a useful description of the size of a church in that it should accommodate six clerics on either side of its walls whilst reciting the Psalter. And I quote the poem. Four files of three, or three of four, to give the psalter forth; six to pray by the south church wall, and six along the north. According to a 15th-century vernacular text, *The Miracles of Saint Senan*, the community at Inish- Inishkheag or Scattery Island, two centuries later, in about the 13th, two centuries earlier, about the 13th century, was envisaged, envisaged to have consisted of seven score psalm singing elders in a household with great courses without plowing, without reaping, without drying, without any activity except study. What is interesting with this reference is that the last sentence, which shows that reverence towards study, this and the focus on psalm singing by St. monastics reminds us of the Benedictine motto of ora et labora, but perhaps with the focus that labora was study work, rather than manual work out in the fields. We also read a valuable passage in the 10th century vernacular life of St. Patrick, that Patrick had set out a standard size for his church settlements. For example, the furta, or the burial ground, measured 140 feet in its enclosure, while the great house, the T moor, measured 27 feet in length (coughs) and 17 feet in its back or its protected space and 7 feet in its oratory. These measurements were not haphazard but were laden with biblical symbolic meaning. We read in chapter 1 of the first book of the kings or first book of kings in the old testament that Solomon had partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary the most holy place. So this 20 cubits is around the same length as 27 feet given for the Timor or the Great House in the life of St. Patrick. This partitioning office space in the Jewish temple may have been the model which Patrick used for his own foundations. Creating a designated space within a monastery or within a church, which is deemed to be the most holy, was an important ritualized space in any early medieval Irish ecclesiastical settlement but the larger renowned monasteries, which benefited from royal patronage, certainly accommodated more than 12 monks. We, re- we read in the annals that a Viking raid on Iona in the year 806 resulted in the entire population of the abbey, then reckoned at 68 people, being massacred. Not all of these individuals, of course, were being professed monastics. A good number were probably quasi-monastics, who supported the community as food providers and as administrators. But this figure nevertheless gives a sense of the size of a large monastic uh, community that's situa- situated on a relatively small island. We can therefore expect other monastic communities, such as at clon Bangor, Banga, Armagh, Clonard, as having large communities as they, unlike Iona, were not islands but were contiguous with important trade routes and roads, making them very accessible to larger numbers of people and enabling them to have extensive land endowments and many workers to till the the fields and supply the monasteries with the daily necessities. In terms of the internal arrangements and layout of monastic sites, we know that houses of hospitality features important places to receive guests Houses of hospitality feature prominently in saints' lives, such as the life of Colum Killer and the life of St. Sennan. We we know in the early early secular law tracts that a large class of men, a hospitaller, was given rights to operate public guest houses located on the major public roadways of Ireland, and that at one point there were six royal guest houses which were located on crossroads, each serving as a refuge for individuals who had committed, amongst other crimes, the crime of bloodshed. A parallel might be drawn here between these secular guest houses and those which were set up in early church settlements, which offered sanctuary and protection under church law. The eighth century Irish collection of canon law, the Collectio Canonum Hibernensis, refers to church settlements as cities of refuge and as places where laymen, adulterers, murderers and others could seek sanctuary, although they were stri- restricted to certain areas of the sanctuary lands of the church and were not able to be admitted to the most holy of holies, the Sanctissimus. We know from other texts that a key official in the monastic community was a guest house keeper, and a reference to, to such a keeper in the monastery of Armagh suggests that he enjoyed a relatively high status. Guest houses were kept by St. his at his community in Kilrush and which are referred to in a series of 14th century poems as having been built by the pious Erchenach, who was portrayed as the protector of Sennon's rights. The responsibility of, of the Erchenach, or uh, of administrators, in building church, uh, in, in, in building guest houses, mirrors the set of obligations stipulated in the 8th century rule of St. Patrick which states that the Erconach are, refor- are to enforce provisions regarding the upkeep of the church, including its physical fabric and its graveyard. So their role as, as, as building and maintaining St. Sennan's guest houses is congruent with other types of activities expected of the Erconachck as church administrators. The vengeance of St. Senon is palpable where, in a poetic exchange with another famous Claire Saint, Inanwi, the patron of Kilnaboy, St. Sennan retorts that his abbots would be cursed if they abandoned their role of looking after his guest houses, or if they diminished the renown of his hospitality. The keeping of hospitality was therefore considered an important duty of a monastery, and there was probably an element of prestige for the monastic community to be able to operate a guest house and render hospitality to pilgrims and clerical guests. We shall now focus our attention on the landscape of the monastic community. Landscape is important, as it too was ordered in a specific way. (coughs) Recent scholarship emphasizes the deliberate ordering of some of the larger monastic sites, such as Iona, so that they symbolically reflected the Holy Land and its important sites. In this context, one wonders if such an approach was undertaken by the sometime after the late 7th century when Adolf Narn, the ninth abbot of Iona, wrote a fascinating work about the holy places of Jerusalem and the holy land. Turning specifically to the lands and the setup of the church, the church lands of Irish monasteries, many of which were donated to the church over centuries by royal benefactors, were called in Irish tarman, which denotes sanctuary we sometimes, we know something of these Tarman lands because the word has been preserved into modern times, often anglicised as Terman, and is found adjacent to ancient church sites. We also have 17th century writings that record the extent of some of those Tarman lands, which had survived as parcels of church land down to that time, including indeed a writing for the 7th century Bishop of Killaloo, John Ryder, who was based here, which records such lands in his diocese at that time as tarman lands. A schismatic plan of a monastery has been preserved in the 8th century Book of Mulling, in which it shows that some communities marked out their tarmen lands, and they were marked out by crosses in order to show, these are high crosses, in order to show what was the tarmen land of the church and what were secular lands. So marking out of church settlement lands with crosses finds support also in the 8th century Irish canons, the church canons, in an entry about the boundary of a holy locus or a consecrated place, we are told in the Irish canons and in an Irish synod had decreed that a boundary of a holy locus should have signs erected around it. This could be taken as alluding to the erection of cross markers on the Tarman lands of a monastery. If we turn our attention to the church of Kilfenora in northwest Clare, Itself recorded in the Irish Annals that have been burnt and sacked in, the, in, the, uh, in 1055 by the O'Briens, it was surrounded by stone high crosses, some of which have survived of course today, such as the cross we have uh, out here. It is thought that the arrangement of these crosses around Kilfenora delineated its tarman lands and was where guests and clergy had the right of sanctuary. The arrangement of crosses, and perhaps the time lands more generally, has been interpreted to indicate progressive levels of holiness. That is the sanctus, the sanctor, and the sanctissimus. Essentially a grading of different degrees of sanctity within the monastic complex. The idea here being that the church and its saintly relics was enclosed by a small division in what is known as the sanctissimus, or the most holy pra- place in the monastic community. Under early Irish law, the Tarman lands also had an important legal standing whereby convicted persons could seek sanctuary on these lands and within which clerics were accorded special protection. As we've seen in the example of Kilfenora, one way of showing these delineations was through the erection of high crosses. And we have various examples still of standing stones at some early Irish monastic sites. One of the best known examples will be Monaster Boyce near Drogheda, At Kilna Boy in central Clare, One surviving Taman marker was a small tau-shaped cross, which seems to have marked the westerly boundary of the church lands of St Ininwi. In terms of church organisation, we know little about how the church was organised and took shape at the time of Patrick's mission in the 5th century. But it appears that due to his activity and legacy, a diocesan system with deacons, priests and bishops was established. This is not surprising as it would have reflected the organization of the church in the Roman Empire and especially in its urban areas, which Patrick was familiar. We know from early church synods that their decrees and from their decrees that the diocesan system expanded over the centuries and that bishops had an important place in ruling over territorial dioceses. However, as there was no urban centers in Ireland at this particular period, these diocesan, diocesan centers or dioceses. Collaced around the tuha, or the native polities. However, by the eighth century, the diocesan system appeared to be unworkable in a decentralized Irish social and political context. And instead, what then emerged was a hybrid system whereby monastic communities tended to be the main, although not the only locus of church activity. Many of these monasteries were headed by an abbot who sometimes was also a bishop. Some historians have viewed the Irish church from the eighth century as being an exclusively monastic church. But this is missing the point. We have clear evidence in synodal decrees and elsewhere that bishops were still important sources of authority and presided over those synods and were required to ordain priests and consecrate churches and undertake other episcopal functions. And in terms of authority in the Irish church it's stipulated in the 8th century Uh, collection of Irish canon law that if matters couldn't be resolved at a local synod or by local bishops, then they were to be referred to the Pope as patriarch or as head of the Western Latin Church. We see this in a letter to Pope Innocent I sent by an Irish cleric, Quimine, in the year 633. His letter was sent because the Irish church synod could not resolve the issue regarding the calculation of the date of Easter. Quimean's letter was seeking to understand the practices of the universal church, and shortly after this, the southern churches in Ireland adopted the Roman calculation. The northern churches, led by Iona, took longer, perhaps a, about a century or so, to accept the new calculation. So this period of consolidation of the early Irish church saw a growth in the primacy of three particular sees: that is Armagh, Kildare, and Clonmacnoise. And these three sees emerged with claims to authority within their respective territories. Iona emerges as a leader of the northern churches, and its reputation spread as far as Northumbria in northern England and farther beyond, partly due to the great reputation of Colum Killer, its sixth-century founder. It was at Iona that the earliest Irish annals or chronicles were kept, a practice which then spread to other monasteries in Ireland and had far-reaching consequences for the recording of Irish history. In fact, in Western Christendom, the Irish appear to have been the earliest to establish a monastic chronicle which recorded obituary notices, as well as key events, especially relating to politics and the church. It is thought that a collection of annals were first compiled from the sixth century at Iona, perhaps directly as a result of St. Colum Killer himself, or one of his immediate successors, And these continued down to the 10th century, when at that point, a number of annals continued as separate narratives such as those which we now call today the Annals of Inish Fallon, the Annals of Ulster, the Annals of Claude McNoise, and others. So I'm going to briefly touch on an important aspect of the early Irish church that is sometimes ignored or glossed over by historians. That is the issue of belief. We can state unequivocally that the fundamental beliefs and praxis of the Irish church were very much in line with the universal church. So we see in some of the earliest writings from the Irish church such as the first synod of St. Patrick, which was maybe 6th century, the laying down of church canons, many of which display the type of concerns that we find in churches elsewhere. In these writings, there is little evidence of what we might deem as heresy or heterodoxy. Considering Ireland's distance from other centres of Christianity, it's perhaps remarkable at how orthodox the Irish were at that period. It may have indeed been their consciousness of being so distant from major centers of Christianity that the Irish were so keen to follow universal church practice. We have much evidence, more than anywhere else north of the Alps in Europe, that in the Irish church canons, the Irish clerics were very well read um, in terms of the patristic fathers, in terms of biblical exegesis, and they were very well versed in biblical history. So it's not the case the Irish were somehow remote from centers of learning and scholarship. For example, important texts such as Eusebius's history and Isidore's chronicles and etymologies, all of these were very much circulating in the Irish church, much more indeed than in churches in Northern Europe at the time. So when we think about belief, the main point that I want to make here is that the Eucharist was central to Irish theology, just as it was in the universal church. The real presence in the Eucharist is referred to in the eighth century poems of Bluffmuck, which were composed by an anonymous cleric, but which focus on the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Saints' lives were also replete with evidence that the Eucharist was believed as a body and blood of Christ. The Irish seem to go to some length in, in, in making that a central tenant of their theology. We also see in a seventh century manuscript known as the Antiphonary of Bangor hymns Uh, uh, certain hymns from the early Irish church, one of which is known as, in translation, come ye saints, and it refers to communicants who were saved by (coughs) by the body and blood of Christ, which is referred to as a sacrament of the body and the blood. So belief in the real presence in the Eucharist was very much central to the early Irish church. Historians have focused on two distinct features of the Irish church that made it somewhat out of step with continental churches. The first was a different calculation of Easter, which was infamously resolved in Synod of Whitby in the year 664. So remember earlier when I mentioned the Easter tables that were first introduced to Ireland by Palladius? The Irish stuck to that method of calculation until it became untenable in the seventh century. The other difference was that the type of tonsure used by the Irish monastics differed somewhat to that used elsewhere in Europe. This might now seem a relatively marginal issue from our standpoint here today, but it was perhaps a visible reminder of the difference which made that practice somewhat controversial perhaps for, for contemporaries. But neither of these differences, however, related to the core beliefs of the Irish church. These were superficial differences. We begin seeing the Irish church flourish from the year 700 onwards. This is in contrast to what we find in England, or much of Europe, north of the Alps, which was primarily non-Christian, even in those territories which, under the earlier Pax Romana, were Christian and shared a vigorous urban Christian culture. By 700, such places uh, in the main had reverted to non-Christian religions, partly on on account of invasion and colonisation by non-Christian peoples. Whilst we have Bede working away in the Kingdom of Northumbria at Jarrow in northeast England, in many respects we don't find a similar network of scholarship elsewhere amongst the English or indeed amongst the Franks at this early period, which was somehow comparable to that which was found in Ireland, which was very robust and very much flourishing. In Ireland, by contrast, we have many texts that were produced by the monastic uh, schools during this period and which then later developed into secular literature, which I'll touch on slightly later. From around the year 700, the church expanded significantly in Ireland, and by virtue of this, we have a corpus of evidence for its activity. One reason for the expansion was that many churches began as proprietary churches, which means they were founded by a lineage group to serve that particular group. In a kin-based dynastic society, which Ireland was at this period, this type of foundation was common, it was incentivized under early Irish law, which vested property rights collectively in the kin group, not in the, in the in, in individual. This means that if they donated land to the church, the entire king, kin had to consent to its alienation. And therefore, what we often find is that whole families held their land from the church, whilst also providing the clergy. This practice continued in various ways right down to the 17th century. And we find many Irish surnames connected to the church or its lands through such a process. My own surname is an example of this. Other names such as MacTuggett, McNab, O'Cleary, Mannix, Minock, O'Mear also show their connections to the church. The earliest records of land donations to the church are found in charter material dating from the second half of the 7th century and copied into the Book of Armagh. By encouraging families to set up monasteries on their land, the church mitigated the difficulties involved in alienating land belonging collectively to the kindred. Under this situation, the quid pro quo was that these families supplied the clergy to the church, or the monastery, which situated on their property, and that they themselves benefited because church lands were exempt from secular taxation. This arrangement appears to have been attractive for lineages who were losing political power. It is this set of factors which gave rise to what is called the proprietary church, which essentially is a system that enabled land to be alienated to the church, whilst at the same time allowing the founding family to still retain a vested interest in it. In Ireland, hereditary control over churches resulted in generational control by a specialist class of administrators who had a deep connection to a particular church or a particular saint's cult. Remarkably, some of these hereditary church families continued to be involved in ecclesiastical affairs right down to the 17th century. So you have that real sense of continuity in Ireland, which we don't necessarily have elsewhere in Europe. From the eighth and 9th century, we begin to find the Irish Annals. In the Irish Annals, church offices connected with administration of monastic centers and their lands. We hear that the Korba, or the Korbs, the Erchenach, or the Ertnachs, these were hereditary church administrators who ensured the fabric of the churches were upkept and levies were paid to the churches. As we have mentioned, some of these officers were restricted to a particular family who had donated that land to a church or were closely involved in its administration over generations. Such families held these offices hereditarily and transmitted it amongst their descendants down many generations. Many of these hereditary administrators continued into the 16th and the 17th century, we have many examples in County Clare of that, and they were seen as a link to the medieval church. For example, the modern Irish surnames of O'Dygonon, uh, Hogan, had Erkinach origins, whilst the Toman surname, Macanerny, which in Irish is Macanerny, indicates its origin from an ancestor who was an Erkinach. Probably the most important aspect of organisation of the Irish church in the 7th to 10th centuries was the growth of what we may deem monastic confederations, the Perusia, This means the jurisdiction of a mother house over smaller monasteries and its churches. Several emerged and sometimes their claims were disputed between each other, such as between Armagh, Clonmacnoise, and Kildare. We also have the rise of Iona and what is called the Columbian Perusia, which stretched from the Western Scottish Isles to the monastery of Durrow in Central Ireland. Some of these Perusia, such as what I just mentioned, were very much far-flung networks linking monastic houses between Scotland, the northern part of Ireland, even into the central part of Ireland, and we would have had a flow of personnel uh, through through this Perusia network. Another example, uh, an important development to note from about the year 700 onwards, is that we begin to see an increase in the documentary evidence of the church. The Irish produced the earliest earliest penitential texts in Europe, which set out a system for private confession to a priest and levied a series series of appropriate penances. That's quite unique uh, to the Irish church and was then exported onto the uh, the continent. We also see some of the first monastic rules being set down, such as the rule of St Columbanus, which was quite a severe rule. The rule of Columbanus was exported to France, Switzerland, and Italy by Irish monks in the seventh century. And this rule allows us to get a sense of these early, albeit strict, uh, monastic rules and the types of concerns and community life which they envisaged. So by this period of our study from the 700s, the Irish church had consolidated its influence. And although of a later period, perhaps around the 9th century, we have a poem written in Old Irish in a compilation called The Martology of Angus, which sort of sets out uh, a metrical listing of, of, of saints and the feast days of saints, this poem also talks about the downfall of heathendom. And it might be considered perhaps as a window on the conversion process of the earlier centuries. The fact that this poem was written in the early ninth century shows that the institutional church was very much confident, uh, both of itself and its own standings in society at that point. I will voice a handful of verses translated by Frank O'Connor which speaks of the self-confidence contained in that ninth century poem. <clears throat> Navin town is shuttered, ruins everywhere. Glendalough remains, half a world is there. Old haunts of the heathen filled from ancient days are but deserts now where no pilgrim prays. One further thing to say about the conversion process is it about that, about, I suppose, a role of technology and management in making the church a pivotal element in the economy, the political and the daily life of people. So a reoccurring question in the study of conversion is whether arable farming was more associated with the church than pastoral farming, pastoral um, uh, pursuits. The idea here is that churches tended to be exploiters of cereal production, which conferred on them greater agricultural surplus and thus economic power. Technology is also important, and the early presence of horizontal water mills, such as the monastic sites at Little Island in County Cork, or the presence, which I mentioned earlier, of a seventh century tidal mill at Nendrum in County Down, stands as evidence of advanced management and application of technology, in running monastic farms and food production. Again, the Irish were leading in this. This is very important, this this point that the technology of of, of some monastic sites in Ireland was very much advanced in in that early period. We don't know how much any of this actually helped the conversion process, but the weight of evidence seems to point to efficient management and application of new technology, much like the Cistercians would do in later medieval Europe, which improved the prestige and the standing of the church economically, having a literate and dedicated class of church administrators who could exchange ideas between churches and observe and copy ideas and technologies from elsewhere, in the very least helped to enhance the prestige of the church. One positive externality of this activity might have been the ability to gain greater converts as this mix of dedication, know-how and mission virtuously combined to impress new converts and ensure that the church was an institution here to stay. On top of all of this the church had a collective institutional memory, skilled personnel and the wherewithal to make good of of their resources and land endowments in an environment that was politically fractured. Insula Sanctorum et Doctorum, the island of saints and scholars. This reference was first written by Mario Scotus, an Irish monk in the 11th century in what is now Germany, and it sums up the period rather pithily, albeit with some slight exaggeration. Ireland's golden age produced three great saints who were very influential in changing the course of Irish and in the, in, and in the case of Columbanus, European history. Whilst I cannot do justice to their legacy here, I shall endeavour to give but a thumbnail sketch of each of these three saints. The first to mention is Colum Killer, who died in the year 597. He was a native of Donegal and was born into a royal family. He was a poet and was well acquainted with the native tradition of poetry and shenichus. He got into a dispute with Symphonian about the copying of a manuscript. Some people call this the first copyright case in history. And due to the ensuing tensions, he exiled himself to Iona in Western Scotland, where he established, of course, a renowned monastery and scriptorium. There exists a Latin Psalter from the 6th century, which is believed to be in the hand of Killer himself. It was preserved as a reliquary shrine and was taken into battles by the O'Donnells, who claimed Killer as a distant ancestor. From the, for this reason, the reliquary uh, shrine became known as a kahak, meaning the battler. We can learn a lot about monastic life at Iona from the biography of Killer, the Vitae Columbae. In this, we learn that the saint was skilled in time reckoning what is now called computus, or the calculation of time through mathematics and astronomy, especially important for ascertaining the date of Easter, so that the liturgical calendar was correctly followed. This was very much a concern amongst the Irish at this period. We also learn from the poem the Ovra Holumkila, or the Canticle of Columba, a poem possibly dating from the seventh century. The Column Killer was skilled in the books of law and that he had lent the scriptures amongst the schools, a reference which implies that the column killer had a teaching role. He's lending scriptures, he's giving them to other monasteries. What is perhaps more impressive in that canticle is a claim that Column Killer mastered Greek grammar. This is a very significant claim, although it could simply be a claim without foundation. However, it does reflect the interests taken by the Irish in this early period about understanding the three sacred languages, which is Greek, Hebrew and Latin. And it also says something about the Irish interest uh, in etymology, and not only in Greek and Latin but also in Irish itself. The Vitae Columbae, or the life of of Colum Killer, is probably the best evidence that we have of the workings, the inner workings of an Irish monastery. It tells us about the keeping of houses of hospitality for visitors, the herding of cattle, and that one monk was a blacksmith, and that also intellectual work was done through the copying of liturgical books and other manuscripts that was undertaken in the scriptorium. But we also read rather humorous anecdotes. We read things such as um, a monk who stood up unwittingly and dropped his book in what was a bucket of water, or another about how a small inkhorn was foolishly tipped over when a visitor came to greet Colum Killer, and at a moment of embracing the saint, the edge of the visitor's garment spilt Colum Killer's ink everywhere. So the fact that the Vitae Columbi" was written by the ninth Abbot of Iona, Adolf Nan, also a relative of Colum Killer himself and also from Donegal, confers a degree of credibility to these stories to what it says about monastic life of that period. The next saint, which I'll briefly touch on, is the same Adolf Nan who authored the Vitae Columbae. He died in the year 704. He is sometimes known in Ulster under his anglicised name, Eunan. Like Column Killer, Adolf Nan was from Donegal. Adolf Nahn is known for promulg- promulgating the first human rights legislation in Europe that specifically protected women and children from the carnage of war. In the year 697, he got agreed the law that was known as a Con Adovnan, or in Latin, the lex innocentium, to use its Latin term, in the town of Burr in County Offaly. It's a very important um, saint, Adovnan. His writings uh, are are still extant to this day. The third saint is Columbanus, or Columborn, the white dove who died in the year 615. Born probably in Leinster, he was attached to Bangor Monastery in Ulster. He later moved and travelled to northern France where he founded a number of monastic houses which followed his own rule. His followers founded an Irish monastery at St Gullen in Switzerland which became famed for its learning and a number of early Irish manuscripts have survived there. Columbanus wrote letters to the Pope about the calculation of Easter. He He wrote in a very sophisticated and nurtured Latin. His letters show wide learning of classical authors, and is often cited as evidence of the type of texts which the Irish had access to. This rich flowering of the Irish church went hand in hand with intellectual activity. Irish scholars developed a high reputation both in Ireland and in Europe. A number of scholars contributed significantly to what is now termed the Carolingian Renaissance. To quote a view, To quote the view of the late scholar Richard Sharp, the Irish had effectively exported her Latin culture to Francia. So what we are seeing by the ninth century is that the Irish were bringing learning back into Europe. The most outstanding Irish scholar of that time, of course, was Johannes Erugina, who died in the year 877, who was regarded as the only scholar in the West who knew Greek properly and authored a number of important philosophical works. Around the same time lived Sedulius Scotus, whose biblical commentaries and treatises on grammar were highly valued at a time when Viking raids in Ireland and Europe were devastating monastic uh, libraries. Okay, so moving to our next slide about the monastic scriptoria, or in other words, the places of scholarship. It will be remiss of me not to say something about this great flowering of literary activity and scholarship, which I've just touched upon. During the eighth to 11th centuries, many of the most active monastic scholars were located in the Midlands and in South or East Ulster. These tended to be monasteries that enjoyed patronage from leading Irish dynasties and were located on the main trade routes. All this mattered because the wealth of a monastery determined whether it could maintain a scriptorium or not. Scriptoria were very expensive. Just imagine the production of books, that the production of books needed hundreds of calf skins to produce the vellum. I have estimated that the 14th century text, the Hurlig, which was written by the Makra or the Magra family, and it's about the battles and the civil wars in, in Tormund here in Clare, probably required about 50 calves to produce that vellum. So such texts could only be produced in wealthy monasteries which, which, with large estates. So during this period, the type of literary production which the monasteries were engaging in was quite diverse. Not only were they undertaking things that we would expect of them, such as biblical studies, they were also recording histories, translating classical texts into Irish from Latin, writing saints lives, compiling even genealogies of the saints. Saints genealogies were popular and quite peculiar to Ireland. One reason for this is that a saint's genealogy linked that saint not just to an ecclesiastical foundation, but to a lineage group. To my earlier point about the importance of lineage groups holding church property. So having a saint linked to both the church and to your own lineage group helped support the claims which were advanced by a particular church or by a monastery. Early writings in Latin included grammatical manuals. It's important to remember that the Irish, the, Irish was the first language to be written in the vernacular from about the 550s or thereabouts. We have many writings in Old and Middle Irish, especially from the 10th century, as Latin from that point was, was used less. Not only do we have many survivals of scriptural studies, saints' lives, devotional r- literature, we also get a mass of secular writings, really important stuff for historians, such as chronicles and genealogies, as well as mathematical texts, alongside native scholarships, native scholarships such as place name studies or Dean Hanichus, and and poetry, filiacht. The Irish produced a corpus of glossaries that focus on the etymologies of Irish words. Alongside these explanatory glosses, the Irish monastic schools were busy producing grammatical treatises in Irish, which reflected classical Latin grammatical texts. So when thinking of the monastic schools, we need to be aware that they were both diverse and creative in their literary tastes, and that there was a real readiness to use even pre-Christian motifs and stories and to retell them and use them in a sophisticated style to explain the origins of the Irish and their language. But when doing this, we are also reminded that the authors were monastics themselves, and to this end we see Christian Latin literary models interwoven in the texts as Irish churchmen looked for literary models from the books of the Old Testament, including emphasis on genealogy and history, which is found in biblical stories. Among the early writings and preoccupations of the Irish clerics at this time was a genre of apocryphal writings. For example we have a fascinating text written in old old Irish known as Unchanga Bithnu, meaning the ever new tongue, which was based on the apocryphal acts of Philip. There existed a rich corpus of Irish apocryphal writings, some of them quite early indeed. Much of the scholarship came out of the Irish, uh, much of this scholarship which came out of the Irish schools focused on exegesis and were pursued within a monastic milieu. But they also show that Irish churchmen relished things such as storytelling and engaging with religious texts in creative ways. So what do we know about the curriculum of the Irish monastic schools? Well, we have the words of St Augustine, which were reflected in a Middle Irish passage and give us some indication of the type of scholarship pursued. Augustine stated, that four things are necessary to study. That is the divine canons, history, grammar, and numbers. A Middle Irish tract sets down the four divisions of knowledge for the poetic profession, and it says they are canons, grammar, history, and enumerating, or numbering. Although in this context, the canons were the seanachas ma, or the native Irish law texts. But from this, we can see that the Irish took care to follow the church fathers, so St. Augustine, example, in terms of the emulation of their scholarship. The best known literature, of course, of this period appears not as a dedicated piece of literature, par se, but as a humble note found in a ninth century manuscript written by an anonymous monk in what is now southern Germany. It's a lovely poem that compares a monk's scholarship with that of his cat named Pengaborn. It's possibly known to some of you here today. Just to give you a flavor of the language, I'm going to read out two of the stanzas in Sian Before I begin, I should confess, I'm not an old Irish language expert, so I stress my pronunciation is approximate. Misha agus Pengeborn, kechta natha friech hendorn, bitha venava shoi friechchelig, Moravan van kam, amhan kherd. Karavay shah fos fer gakhklu, och malavron le ignu. Niforavan Juk frim pengabon, karad keshen dawn. I and penggaborn, my cat, tis a like task we are at. Hunting mice is his delight, hunting words I sit all night. Better far than praise of men, tis to sit with book and pen. Panga bears me no ill will, he too plies his simple skill. And the poem goes on to say in, transla- in translation, tis a merry thing to see at our tasks, how glad are we when at home we sit and find entertainment to our mind. Oftentimes a mouse will stray in hero Panga's way. Oftentimes my keen thoughts set takes a meaning in its net. Against the wall he sets his eye, full and fierce and sharp and sly. Against the wall of knowledge I, all my little wisdom try. When a mouse darts from its den, oh, how glad is Panga then. Oh, what gladness do I prove when I solve the doubts I love. So in peace our tasks we ply, Panga, born my cat and I. In our arts we find our bliss, I have mine, and he has his. Practice every day has made, Panga perfect in his trade. I get wisdom day and night, turning darkness into light. The monastery where this monk wrote those wonderful verses had a scriptorium and became a seat of learning in Europe. Indeed, its early medieval Irish manuscripts have survived the centuries and they bear witness to the Irish scholarly element in this part of the continent. Monastic education in Ireland was overseen by what the Irish sources called lectors or sapiens, meaning wise men, who were initially clerics. As time went on, the lectors became known in Irish as farlian, which means a man of learning or reading, in other words, a textual scholar. By the end of our survey, in the 11, about the 1100s, many of these men of learning appear to have been secular scholars, although some debate remains about how monastic they were. Some of them, such as the renowned Flann Monastrach of Monaster Boyce, were scholars of great learning and who were involved in rather politicised scholarship of synthetic, what is known as synthetic history. This is history that provided a background to the history of the Irish and how the kings of, of the pre-Christian and Christian Ireland ruled, who they ruled over, as well as their territories and peoples. So it was from this influential group of monastic scholars that we find that many of the learned families of later medieval Ireland drew their origins from. This was not an insignificant development and the emergence of a Bardic lawyer in historian class in the medieval period which came to attach themselves to the then centers of powers, the the courts of the Gaelic nobility and later some of the even Anglo-Norman families often traced their ancestral origins back to the scholarly monastic class of the 12th century. The fact that we have secular families who are professional specialists in history and law carrying on the compilation of annals right down to the 16th century shows just how much the later Gaelic literati owed their influence and teaching to the pre-12th century monastic schools and its curriculum. At its most simple, this this shows us in Ireland really about the importance of continuity in the scholarly tradition and how it had very much deep roots. I'm not going to go into any great depth here about the reform of the Irish Church in the 12th century, but it is certainly relevant to our period of study, so I'll confine myself to making just some few headline remarks. Whilst the so-called East-West Schism in the Church occurred in the year 1054, its implications were not felt in Ireland until much later. And even then, what was primarily felt in Ireland was a Gregorian or Hildebrandine reform, which emerged as a series of changes which aimed to reform and extend the temporal authority of the papacy, as well as implement new canonical laws as regards morality, marriage, and clerical celibacy. The effects of the reform program were felt later in Ireland, but their implementation Aside from establishing new hierarchies such as parishes and dioceses, they first come into fruition in the 12th century, these reforms did not result in sweeping the older functionaries of the Irish monasteries completely aside. In fact, many elements of the older system remained, at least at the parish level, down to the early 17th century. For example, the presence of hereditary clerical families, the Eirkenach, as I mentioned earlier, continued in Gaelic areas into the 17th century, when some of them were granted lands and leases on the newly reconstituted lands of the Church of Ireland. The O'Grady's of Tomb were one such example of a family who were granted such leases, as were the O'Flannery's of Clonrush near Whitegate, who held the church lands of Clonrush from at least the mid-15th century. We begin to see the seeds of reform being sown in the Irish church from the late 8th century with the Cayley Day, or the Cull Dee, as it's known in English, movement. It's essentially wa- it essentially wanted a greater return to the monastic ideal, that is greater asceticism. It appears that those monks who wished to follow this movement did so either within existing monastic communities, or they went and founded their own communities of stricter observance elsewhere. Their influence was, sp- sp- was spread as far afield as Scotland, but the origins of the movement lay in a set of monasteries near Dublin. In the 11th and 12th century, there was a movement within the Irish church to preserve some of the best historical and antiquarian writings from the monasteries. These included not just religious tracts, but also a large corpus of secular literature, such as tales and histories. We have, surviving from this time, the great compilations, such as the Book of Leinster and the Lara Nahidra from about the year 1100, and other such great codices in Irish. In these compilations, they have preserved some ancient pieces of Irish literature, such as the Unlaw Gawala Erin*, the Book of the Taking of Ireland, and the Toimbal Cullna, or the Cattle Catara- Raid of Cooley. In some cases, we know the attitude of the monastic compilers to these legendary stories. In the Toimbal Kulna, there is appended two colophons, one in Irish and one in Latin. The Irish colophon says a blessing upon any, anybody who will study the toin faithfully and who will not add or change it. So far, so normal. But rather a rather revealing uh, colophon appears in Latin, which goes on to say, and I quote, but I who wrote this history, or rather fables, do not give credence to certain things in this history or fables. For certain things in it are the deceptions of demons Certain things, however, are poetic fictions. Certain things resemble the truth, certain things do not. Certain things are for the enjoyment of fools. The change of tone between the Irish and the Latin colophons by the scribe is quite stark as it is interesting. It would appear that whilst the monastic scribe gave little credence to to this traditional story, he was nevertheless careful to record faithfully the story itself. It was this respect for the native tradition that permeated the writings of Irish monastic scholars, but who did so through the prism of ecclesiastical and Latin learning. In 1101 and 1111, a series of church synods were held to reorganize the church along lines compliant with, this, with the so called Gregorian reforms of the Latin Western Church. This saw the end of the native monasteries and may have been the stimulus for preserving some of their texts and antiquarian writings. In a series of synods, it was decreed that a diocesan system was to be established, and from this time we have the imposition of clerical celibacy. The number of bishops was reduced, and as a result, some monastic houses, such as Scattery Island or Mungret near Limerick, lost their episcopal status. Elsewhere, former Episcopal sites such as Clonmacnoise were refounded under the Augustinian rule. Indeed, the Augustinian rule was the most popular refoundation for native monasteries. It's been argued that the Augustinians, who were essentially secular priests and lived in a community and focused on pastoral work, reflected elements of the pre reformed native monasteries. Indeed, the refounding of these monastic sites under the Augustinian rule may have been at least in some cases, a case of donning new monastic garb, but without much fanfare or change, either to, the, to their activities or to the personnel of these monasteries. But a more recent view that has gained traction is that the refounding of monastic sites by continental religious orders, such as the uh, Augustinians, and the creation of new dioceses sees saw quite a significant reorganization of the older Irish church which was essentially tantamount to asset stripping. With the Norman invasion of 1169, many lands of the Irish, uh, older Irish monasteries were confiscated and either secularized or re-granted to European monastic religious orders, such as the Cistercians and others. From this point, the church in Ireland was reformed, but many ways but in many ways, the pre-reformed practice and organization of the church continued, especially in those areas under the control of the native Irish kings. One wonders how much really changed at the parish level. Certainly the papal decrees on celibacy for parish clergy were ignored, and we have much evidence of this in the 15th century papal letters, which also shows that celibacy was sometimes ignored even amongst monastics such as the Augustinians. One example will be suffice to demonstrate this point. The Augustinian Abbey of Clare Abbey was dominated from the late 14th century to the 16th century by clerics of the clan Cra, or the McGrath, learned family of poets and chroniclers to the Ivrian, or the O'Brien kings. A number of petitions to the papal cura survived from the 15th century, seeking dispensations from the sons of abbots who wished to follow a clerical career like their fathers. And it was from this very same family, the McGraths, the number of bishops of Killaloo were drawn from during the 15th century. This serves as just one example of those enduring links between the church and the learned families during the late medieval period. So for the rest of the Middle Ages, the Irish church was divided into two separate camps, with the counties around Dublin being the church among the English, or the inter-Anglicos, and the rest of the country, being a church amongst the Irish, the inter hibernicos. I shall like to bring this lecture to a conclusion. We have touched on a number of broad themes regarding the early Irish church, and we have surveyed 600 years of history. Invariably, this has meant that our survey has been rather superficial, but hopefully somewhat wide reaching. It's my hope that some of these topics discussed here today might encourage you to do further reading and study this extraordinary period of Irish history for which there is still much to learn from. I shall close quoting the words of Donatus of Fisole in Italy, who was a 9th century Irish bishop and whose poem on Ireland brings to life some of the achievements of the early medieval Irish church and its scholars. It shouldn't be lost on us that the poem was composed by one such scholar himself, a bishop, but whose verses? were in sophisticated, nurtured Latin, but at the same time, whose tradition was resolutely Irish. The noblest share of the earth is a far Western world whose name is written Scotia in the ancient books. Rich in goods, in silver, in jewels, cloth and gold, benign to the body in air and mellow in soil. With honey and with milk flow islands, lovely plains, with silk and arms, abundant fruit, with art and men. Worthy are the Irish to dwell in this their land, a race of men renowned in war, in peace, in faith. So that concludes today's lecture on the early Irish church. Ramila Mahagat. Yeah, happy to take questions. I might have some tea in the interim, if I may.